Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. This week, Arizona's tax credits for charitable giving. 33 states have some sort of tax credit for charitable giving on the books, according to a 2018 research paper from the law schools at the University of California, Los Angeles and University of California, San Francisco. Arizona has eight different laws that set up tax credits for giving to certain organizations, the second highest in the country, according to that paper. Those credits range from giving to qualifying foster care nonprofits to paying for private school tuition. Forbes found that almost half of Arizonans made a charitable contribution of $25 or more in 2021. A note of disclosure, ACPM is a not-for-profit, but is not a qualifying organization for any of the tax credits we mention in this episode. To learn the basics about these tax credits, we spoke with two people from the Arizona Department of Revenue. Elaine Smith is a Deputy Assistant Director, and Rory Wilson is a Tax Policy Executive. Smith starts our conversation by telling us how much Arizonans donated to charities that qualify for tax credits last year. Our most recent data for an entire year is for 2021. In that year, we had 189,000 claims for the QCO credit, the Qualified Charitable Organization credit, and that generated credits of $101 million. Um, For the QFCO, which is for foster care organizations, we had 43,000 claims for $33 million in credits. These amounts have grown consistently from year to year. That's a significant amount of money, um, which means Arizonans are helping out charities and foster organizations. You said it's consistent growth. I think it was 1998 that the charitable donation tax credit began, correct? Yeah, in kind of an former uh, self, yes, it was a little bit different at the time, but that is when it started. Um, It has evolved over the the time period since then. Um, I don't have the data handy about how much was taken in credits at that point in time. The oldest data that I happen to have right here was that in um, 2014 tax year, there was about $35 million of credits uh, claimed with over 100,000 folks. But nevertheless, it was a much smaller amount at that point in time. Rory, this next question sounds like one for you. So people understand, as we approach the happy tax season that everybody always looks so forward to, what's the difference between a tax credit that we're talking about and a tax deduction? I think simply put is just the amount of sort of, you know, bang for your buck kind of thing. You know, a, a credit is dollar for dollar. But so you do your taxes, you have a tax liability of $1,000. You also have a $1,000 tax credit. That just completely wiped out your tax liability. Let's suppose, for instance, though, that you had a $1,000 deduction. That would reduce your Arizona gross income by $1,000. So what, what's the net benefit of that? Well, then you have to look at what the tax rate is. And Arizona has a flat tax rate of 2.5% now. So that $1,000 deduction is worth $25. That $1,000 credit is worth $1,000. Now, the one thing to keep in mind is most credits that Arizona has are non-refundable, which means you can take a credit up to the amount of tax liability you have. Um, Let's say you owe $500 and you have a $1,000 tax credit. You could use $500 of that in the current year. You could then carry forward the other $500 
to a subsequent tax year and claim it over the next, with most credits, it's usually a five-year carryover. If you have no tax liability, you would just carry over the entire amount. So I can't give, as you said, the $1,000 to a charitable organization, have a $500 tax bill, and get $500 back in my pocket. <laughs> There's no check coming back to me. Right. You, you can only reduce reduce your liability to, uh, to zero. There's no excess. There are what's called refundable credits, and we do have a couple of those, but that's not what these are. So to where you could actually get a refund of more than even your tax liability was. Sometimes a big deduction sounds like a lot, but and it might be for federal purposes, but for state purposes with such a low income tax rate, it's really it's often not worth worth very much. So is this program unique to Arizona? Do other states do things like this? I would say uh, yes, at some level. I, th- I think roughly uh, 39 states impose a state individual income tax. Almost all those states are very much in line with, you know, federal adjusted gross income, the IRS and the starting point. And if you itemize deductions, you can take a charitable tax deduction. And most of those flow through when you get the deduction. Um, Arizona's obviously taken that, you know, another step forward with uh, tax credits. We're not the only state that's done it. North Dakota has a credit. Uh, Colorado has a charitable tax credit for like a, a, you can donate to homeless shelters. The one difference I would say between Arizona and a lot of the other states is that it's a tax credit, but it's limited. Like say you donate in Colorado, you donate $1,000 to a, a homeless shelter. Your tax credit is 250 bucks. You get 25%. Arizona's is unique and it's 100% credit. You donate $1,000, you get a $1,000 tax credit. Now you can't double dip. You can't take a tax credit and a deduction. So yeah, I would I would say Arizona's approach is fairly novel. There's a few, like I said, Colorado, North Dakota, Michigan had one briefly, uh, North Carolina. But in general, we're kind of the the state that's I would say most known for for these charitable tax credits. What does a nonprofit have to do to get on the list or to even qualify to be on the list of an organization that can receive these tax credits? Currently, we have 1,200 charities on our QCO list and 56 charities on our QFCO list. To get on the list, an organization needs to submit an application and supplemental information, such as their 501c3 certification from the IRS, a narrative explaining the population they serve and the, and the services that they provide, and recent financials. That's the initial process. And then we work with organizations through phone calls and emails to go back and forth and make sure that we have a full understanding. I mean, the the goal is for us to really understand enough about the organization so that we can make that determination. And then with regard to what they need to do as services, there's a little bit difference between the QCO and the QFCO. And that difference is getting a little bit broader over the last couple of years with some law changes. But I'll start with the QCO. The eligible clients are low-income, chronically ill, or physically disabled residents. The services that they provide that would qualify in this evaluation from us would be those services meet immediate basic needs, and examples are cash assistance, medical care, child care, food, clothing, shelter, job placement, job training, or other services that are an immediate basic need. That word immediate is really important. And then that they need to spend at least 50% of their expenses on those qualified services for eligible residents. That's for the QCO. 
the QFCO, the same services could qualify as what is in a QCO, but the eligible population has been broadened to include foster children and young adults. The list is long in the statute, and I won't read them, but it is essentially foster children and those transitioning out of foster care. The services has also been broadened for the QFCOs, and that it includes all of those QCO services plus character education, workforce development, secondary education, student retention, housing or financial literacy services. And the other category here includes things that are reasonably necessary to meet immediate basic needs or provide normalcy. One additional criteria is that the QFCO organizations must serve at least 200 eligible uh, clients per year. You know, for some of them, it's very easy. That can be a tough nut for some of the newer ones. And then also they need to spend at least 50% of their expenses on qualified services. So the QFCO uh, credit organizations can provide much more in the way of services that would qualify, but they do need to meet that serving 200 clients uh, criteria as well. What does an organization need to do to stay on the list? Are there audits, uh, either annually or, or uh, on a larger, because there's, the list is so long, on a longer uh, standpoint than, than annually? But what does a group need to do to make sure that they're still doing what they're supposed to be doing? We wouldn't call anything an audit. And there is no need to reapply every year or re- even really re-engage with us every year. Over time, we have completed some recertifications. So this is where it, it may come up that an organization needs to interact with us in order to stay on the list. In the past, we've had a few recertifications. We've had to reevaluate organizations when there's been a change in the law. If there's been a change in the law where, in fact, the qualifying services or population has been restricted, we do have to reach out to all of the organizations and make sure that they do still qualify In addition, we have conducted a full recertification of the QFCO list a couple of years ago, and we have gone through a partial recertification of the QCO list. That process, uh, really, what we would end up doing in those cases is we would ask them to reapply and provide us with new information. Organizations do change over time. They do close and fail to tell us. They do change the nature of their uh, services over time. And so we do have the opportunity to recertify them periodically. And we will, over time, make our way through the entire list for those recertifications. Well, that's great. Thank both of you for spending some time with us and trying to educate uh, the public as we move into this fun tax season that uh, approaches every year. You are welcome. Tax season opened yesterday, so you're ready. <laughs> That was the Arizona Department of Revenue's Elaine Smith and Rory Wilson. One of Arizona's tax credits covers contributions made or fees paid to public schools, while another allows for contributions to private school organizations. To learn more about credits that go towards schools, we spoke with Dustin Williams. He's the superintendent of schools for Pima County. We started by asking him how much money comes into Pima County schools through the tax credits each year. That's a really good question because it does vary from, you know, district to district, charter to charter, and private to private. So finding out the total, I'd really have to get with some of our big finance IRS people to find out what those totals look like. But I know it's into the hundreds of thousands across 
probably Pima County and, and you know, upwards to a million in, in Arizona, I would imagine. So it's obviously important to schools, but it's not large percentage of the budget when you when school districts and your office are putting together budgets. It's not like, OK, we can really count on this money. It's extras, it sounds like. Yeah, tax credits, because the funding system here in Arizona is, you know, so low, always ranking in the last place for educational funding. Um, it's become actually a little necessity for certain schools and some of their departments for extracurricular activity, career and technical education, um, assessment courses or certifications, um, different projects that schools have, they really, really hope to get as much contribution as they can from the public in their district areas or surrounding, but it's not a guarantee. So it kind of fluctuates with how the community's doing, if inflation's on the rise, if higher taxes, income issues, it's, uh, it sometimes can't be something to be guaranteed on. If a parent or, or just a community member wants to give, because it is that time of year, a donation to a specific school, it, can they specify, I want it to go to this extracurricular activity or sports, or I want it to go to a specific classroom or something like that, or is it just a blanket check to the school? The first thing is, obviously, we want everyone participating. It's a match on your tax dollars, so it's a tax benefit to the um, to the constituent. But it also just really helps out these schools. And yes, there's options. So typically, the school district is, or the school itself, will give parents or constituents uh, five choices in different areas, like you mentioned, extracurricular activities. It could be ACT assistance or testing assistance, whichever it is the school's kind of really earmarking or focusing on. And then if a parent still would like to do other and have it go to kind of the general fund for the tax dollar distributions, it can go that way as well. Have you seen over time, and yeah, I guess it's anecdotal, but do schools in better socioeconomic areas get more donations than schools in areas that are less well-off, or is there nothing traceable, if you will, like that? Generally, I think I would go to the rather. You're going to see a higher participation rate, typically in higher socioeconomic areas of of where people live. And it's really because it's also kind of disposable income. What can you afford at that time? Even though it is a tax incentive for um, the family member or the single family member, it also is, is money that's coming out of your pocket when you write that check at that moment. So if you're going to be doing the maximum for public schools, which is 200 or 400 if you're a couple, that sometimes is a lot of money for certain people. And if they don't have that, that money ready to spend at that moment, they're not going to write those tax incentive dollars to the schools. Does that money... Does the family, the individual, write it to the schools or do they write it to your office and then you distribute it to the schools as they've earmarked it? How, how does the system work on a practical level? Yeah, on a practical level, you would go to your school. So say it was a Holloway Elementary School in the Amphi District, you go right to Holloway Elementary. It might be great for you to just ask the principal, say, hey, what are your focus areas for the tax dollars? 
and you would write it right to the school and there's a form. So it's all proper procedures. So we've talked largely about public schools, mostly in terms of, you know, of our, our, our typical school. How does all of this work for charter schools and private schools in Pima County and throughout the state? Charter schools fall right in line with regular district schools. It gets a little different when you venture over to the private schools, especially when they participate in a student tuition organization. Um, the tax dollar goes up. So as a single person, you can put $200 to public schools, but in the private school arena, you can up that up to $500 and families can even get up into the range of $1,000. So you have a big distribution difference a lot of people think, is this equal? Is this fair? And especially now with universal vouchers where we have private entities taking the exact public dollars, that now public schools should be able to up that ante and have the ability to donate more in the arena of public schools. It seems like you said a couple hundred thousand dollars probably coming into Pima County. A lot of people are participating in this, especially in $200 chunks. Uh, that's, that's a lot of people. Yeah, it really is. I think you have some people that really at the end of the year, they want to find a way to contribute to public education or education in general. And sometimes they don't know how to do that. They don't have time to come in and possibly volunteer or read to students or help with school cleanups around the community. So they find it better to just take a tax incentive on their taxes each year and then also donate a little money to the schools. All right. Well, thanks for spending some time with us. Absolutely. You bet. That was Pima County Schools Superintendent Dustin Williams. We wrap up today's show with a nonprofit's perspective on tax credits. One of the new charities on the list of qualifying charitable organizations this year is the Terrence Pickerel Heart Fund. To learn about what it takes to get on that list and the benefits it brings, we spoke with Kathleen Pickerel, the fund's executive director. She starts by telling us what the process of becoming a QCO is like. Actually, it was not bad at all, believe it or not. I... I you know, I have no nonprofit experience when I started this. I'm like, hey, I'm going to start a nonprofit. And then you learn as you go what you don't know, right? And so some of the process has been more difficult than others. But when someone mentioned to me, hey, you should apply for this qualified charitable organization designation, I thought, okay, well, let me check it out. Um, let me see how hard it is because. If it's too hard, maybe I'll wait till next year when I've, I'm more established because there's so much to do when you're starting a nonprofit. But uh, I, I just Googled how to do it. I went on the, the website, uh, the .gov website that they have and looked at what they needed. And for me, the hardest part was putting together the financials that they needed because I had never done that before. And so this was all new to me and I was trying to figure that out. And I have to tell you, they were so nice. Actually, I would like to give a shout out if I may to Alejandra Garcia there because I submitted stuff and she's like, this is not the format we need it. Okay, let me try again. And no, this is still not quite right. And like, I just didn't know what I was doing. And she got on the phone. She walked me through the process. I would not have been able to do it without her. 
the rest was really easy. But since I didn't have the financial knowledge of how to put financials together in a form that that these agencies are looking for, that was really the hardest part. And they were so nice. One of the things we've heard that can be discouraging, especially for new nonprofits and people trying to get on the list, is the minimum number of clients, if you will, or people who you are serving. Uh, It sounds like that wasn't a problem for you. You had the numbers they needed in that way so you could get right on. Yeah, I, I guess so. They were more focused on which category I would fall into. So we help a chronically ill patients. And so we fit into that designation. And then uh, we have to spend at least 50% of our budget on qualified Arizona residents, meaning um, lower income. And our criteria is that we help patients who are at 350% of the poverty level or below. And so uh, there were no issues with that. Actually, my very first phone call to them was as I was reading through the list on the website, I was like, do I even qualify? I wasn't sure. um, Do I have to fit all these categories or one of these or what? And I just, I called them and I actually got a human being and they talked me through it and said, yes, actually you do qualify. You should submit an application. And so I did. And granted, you've only been on it one year this coming into the second tax season you've been on it. Actually, this is the first tax season because we just got it in October. So has it changed your fundraising message at all? You know, when you when you talk to people who you're trying to get donations from, you can tell them you can get a tax credit versus a tax deduction. Absolutely. Yes, I'm trying to spread the word because I think that's the part, the hardest part for people to understand. And I didn't understand that you'd get a dollar for dollar taken off of your taxes versus a, a deduction. It's the real amount. So it really actually costs you nothing if you actually owe on your Arizona state taxes. But that's, uh, it's kind of a hard concept to grasp because you don't really get that many other places. It's all about a deduction in percentages and whatever, but this is actually, you know, dollar for dollar. You get to choose where your money goes if you choose to donate to a qualified charitable organization. What's the reaction been when you've talked to people? Has it helped you with the fundraising? Does it seem like you're getting more? Granted, you're a new organization, so every year is hopefully growth, but does it seem like people are really responding with this? They are. I'm very excited to see kind of where we wind up at, at the end of tax season because you can you can donate up until April 15th. I'm curious to see how it goes, but I'm getting a lot of feedback of people telling me, oh, I know I'm going to owe this year, so I will, I will de- donate to your charity. This can be a real game changer for us. We've talked a lot about nuts and bolts so far, but let's hear about what you all do at the Pickerel Heart Fund. Tell us a little about it. We provide critical financial support to low-income heart transplant patients, pre- or post-transplant. They can be working up for an evaluation for a transplant or have received one five, ten years ago, but they're financially struggling or working up to get something that's called an LVAD, a left ventricular assist device. So that is sometimes what has to happen instead of getting a transplant. Uh, So we provide financial assistance for those patients. 
with basic living necessities, food, uh, transportation, rent, mortgage, utilities, lodging, which becomes a real issue when you're traveling to, to one of these centers. And we provide that support to all transplant centers in the state of Arizona. So the full name is the Terrence Pickerel Heart Fund. Correct. People can't help but notice the shared surname. It's named after your late husband. Tell us a bit of the story, how this all started. He had his first heart attack at age 45, and we lived with heart failure for the next 13 years and and how difficult that is. And uh, the ups and downs of that, he had a couple more heart attacks, had more stents placed and all of those things. And then one day, 13 years later, he had an episode and we went to the cardiologist. They did a stress test, said, you know, you seem about the same as you were a few years ago. And he, but let's do an angiogram. So routine angiogram did it before. Um, but unfortunately he, he, he died there on the table having an angiogram. So that was obviously life-changing for me. And then fast forward to a year and a half ago when um, I'm a medical social worker by trade. So I've worked and I know the financial need that's out there as people face you know, life-threatening illness. And so when I started working with transplant patients, I, I had an epiphany. I'm like, well, why don't I start a fund to actually help these people in a very, you know, tangible, meaningful way. There's a lot of uh, charities and organizations and nonprofits that raise money for research, and we really need those. But uh, in my years of working with cancer patients, you know, the immediate need, I don't have food, I can't get to my appointments, I can't afford my medication. And so knowing that is really what prompted me to start this and to name it after my husband to honor him. Well, thank you for all you're doing, and thanks for spending some time with us. Well, thank you so much. It was so nice to talk with you. That was Kathleen Pickerel of the Terrence Pickerel Heart Fund. And that's The Buzz for this week. Tune in next week as we look at organ and tissue donation in Arizona. You can find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR app. Zach Ziegler is our producer with production help from Desiree Tucker. Our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.